You're listening to the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision-Making and Society podcast. I'm Leah Hawkins, and in this episode, Professor Malin Tambi from Google Research India discusses the importance of the data-to-deployment pipeline, using AI for social good. Using examples of his research, Professor Tambi details two key studies that exemplify how AI and multi-agent systems can be utilized to overcome existing challenges in public health, conservation, public safety, and security. To begin, Professor Tambi provides an overview of a study utilizing algorithmic intervention to reduce rates of HIV in the Homeless Youth Network of Los Angeles. To begin, Professor Tambi provides an overview of a study utilizing algorithmic intervention to reduce rates of HIV in the Homeless Youth Network of Los Angeles. So I'm going to uh, talk to you today about AI for social impact. For the past 15 years, me and my research team have been focused on applying AI and multi-agent systems research towards public health, conservation, and public safety and security, with the key challenge of how to optimize our limited intervention resources. And I'll just get down right to some of the lessons that we have learned. The first lesson is achieving social impact and AI innovation go hand in hand. So concrete example is work we've done, which I'll cover today, in reducing HIV amongst youth experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles. We are living through one pandemic, which is the COVID pandemic, but there are other pandemics, for example, HIV. Um, you, harnessing the social networks of these youth, we are able to show that our algorithms are far more effective in reducing HIV risk behaviors among these youth compared to traditional approaches. What this work required was innovation in the area of social network algorithms and so-called bandit algorithms. With respect to conservation, we have large conservation areas to protect limited range of resources. Concrete example of work I'll cover here, work we've done in Uganda and Cambodia, harnessing past poaching data, we are able to predict where poachers may set traps and for the past several years have been able to remove thousands of these traps. This has required advances in combining machine learning and game theory in so-called green security games. In the past, we've contributed newer algorithms in game theory in a model called Stackelberg security games. This is for counterterrorism, and this was work done uh, in collaboration with the US Coast Guard, for example, which have been using these algorithms we developed or with the Federal Air Marshal Service and other security agencies in the United States. A second lesson is all of the work I will talk about today is in partnerships with non-governmental organizations, nonprofits, and some government organizations. I'm often asked, you know, how, how do you start this work on social impact? And my answer is that the work we do is inspired by the work, that's tremendous work that the nonprofits are doing around the world. And our goal is to empower these nonprofits to use AI tools and avoid being gatekeepers to AI technologies for social impact. A third lesson is in doing this work on AI for social impact, we have to pay attention to the entire data to deployment pipeline. It's not just about improving algorithms. 
So our work starts by immersing ourselves in the domain with the nonprofit, trying to understand the kind of problems they face, the kind of data they have. Following that, a predictive model, a machine learning model, makes predictions on which of the cases the nonprofit has are high risk versus low risk. If we had enough resources, we would have intervened on all of the high risk cases, but we don't. And so which cases to actually intervene on given limited resources, that's the job of our multi-agent reasoning algorithms. And then finally, field testing and deployment is crucial because social impact itself is a key objective of our work. If we are not achieving social impact, then it is not AI for social impact. So I'll start with this social work on social networks. This work is motivated by trying to prevent HIV amongst youth experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles. There's 6,000 youth who sleep on the streets of Los Angeles every night. The rates of HIV amongst this population is 10 times the rates of the normal housed population. So homeless shelters will try to, they cannot obviously communicate with all 6,000 youth. So they try to bring in some key peer leaders, educate them about HIV prevention, and expect these peer leaders to talk to their friends and their friends to talk to their friends. And in this way, information to spread in their social network. This is real face-to-face -face interaction. This is not happening, for example, over Facebook. Now, some of you may recognize that this is the classical problem of influence maximization in computer science. The input is a social network graph we have to choose some K peer leader nodes in this graph, say five peer leader nodes or 50 peer leader nodes, so as to maximize the expected number of influence nodes, maximize the expected number of youth who know about HIV prevention. We assume here that information spreads in so-called independent cascade model, and I'll explain that to you next. So given some social network, remember this is not over Facebook. This is the actual friendship network. This is an actual network of the youth in one of the shelters in Los Angeles, friendship network. And each number here, uh, we've, in order to protect the identity of these youth, we've just given them a number that represents a single youth in this uh, network. So if we pick one youth, let's call him, uh, let's call this youth A, then educate them about HIV prevention, then in this independent cascade model, we assume that there is their A's friend B who will know about HIV prevention with a probability of 0.4. And then B will talk to C, their friend with a probability of 0.4. So C will also come to know about HIV prevention with a probability of 0.4. And so information is cascading in the network in this fashion. So if we are given a budget of five nodes, now we have to select which are the best five nodes, which are the best five youth to select in the network to maximize the spread of HIV information in this network. So is it this five or is it some other five? That's the key challenge. Once we select these youth, then our social work colleagues as shown here in this picture will you know, there's a day long session they go through about HIV prevention and how to spread this message in the network. So that's a picture of this uh, education session in progress. So that's the challenge that we face. 
Now, there are standard techniques in computer science for doing influence maximization, but if we try to apply them directly in our work, there are three key challenges that come together, and they arise because of lack of data and uncertainty. Now, often in the domains we face in AI for social good, um, lack of data is actually a feature. It's just the way it is. I've seen students who work with me who will complain that you know, they want to do data science, but there's not real, you know, clean data sets available in, in these kinds of domains that we work with. We're working with marginalized communities and so on. And that's just the way it is. We have to work with the fact that we have limited data. And so one of the challenges as a result is that we do not know the exact propagation probability like 0.4. We don't have immersion in this domain clearly shows it is hard to get those exact probabilities. Um, peer leaders themselves sometimes don't show up, so we may say we want to select these five youth, but these are youth under difficult circumstances. So some may, we may have selected a youth, but that youth may not have a bus fare to come to the shelter to go through the session. They may send their friend, for example. So we have to handle this peer leader no-shows. And thirdly, normally in computer science, when this problem is studied, they assume that the whole social network is given as input. But in our domain, we do not know the social network ahead of time. All we can do is ask a few of the youth who their friends are. We cannot ask it of the entire uh, set of youth. So we may say, you know, we can go to a shelter and in one day ask 20 youth about who their friends are and in this way uncover a small fraction of the social network. But that's all we get. And based on that, we have to figure out who are the key influencers. So again, um, these are challenges that we just have to address in our domain. So, for example, uncertainty over social, uh, propagation probability. Normally, in influence maximization, as we discussed, it is assumed that if we talk to a youth C, then an adjacent youth, their friend D, will get informed with the probability of 0.4, which is known ahead of time, about HIV prevention. In our domain, this probability is not known. So we can say that we are sampling this from some distribution, but we may not even know the mean of this distribution. So therefore we can say the mean of the distribution lies within some interval. So now we are faced with the problem of influence maximization when there's uncertainty in the propagation probability. And this problem we handle by, uh, basically this is a problem of robust influence maximization. We solve this problem as a game. So on the one hand, our algorithm is trying to choose peer leaders to maximize the spread of influence. But we assume that nature is trying to choose parameter settings, is trying to choose those propagation probabilities to cause our algorithm to perform as worse as possible. And so for those who are familiar, we're basically trying to solve this as a zero sum game against nature where we are trying to maximize the payoff. Nature is trying to minimize the payoff and the payoff is me measured as a regret, as a measure of regret, a ratio of the outcome of the policy that we have chosen to what we could have chosen optimally had we known nature's parameter settings in advance. So I'm not going to go into details, but basically by solving these kinds of algorithms, we can get a robust policy. The second problem I'll discuss is sampling of social networks. You know, we could imagine 
sending our social work colleagues to a homeless shelter, sitting, they can sit there, they can sit there for days, they can talk to all of the youth and kind of fig and figure out the entire social network within a shelter as to who's, who's friends with whom. This is very costly. And if we want this work to be applied in different cities in Los Angeles, San Francisco, et cetera, then you know, is this, this is not gonna scale up. We need a fast, simple way for this technique to work. And to that end, we assume that we can only query, let's say 15% of the nodes. We can go get our social work colleagues to go to a homeless shelter, ask, a, ask questions about say 15% of the youth that may show up in the center that day, that's it. And they'll ask a question of who are your top five friends? Something like that, just note that down. That allows them to essentially get the, a, you know, understanding of the social network. The key here for us is the right sampling algorithm. You know, who do you sample? That's the secret sauce that we bring to the table. And so the idea is that once we sample exactly this uh, small fraction of the population, then we output the K peer leader nodes. And at the same time, we guarantee that the performance of our algorithm, even though we have chosen peer leaders from a small sample of the network is similar to the optimal possible if we knew the full network ahead of time. And this is uh, done by sampling nodes randomly, estimating sizes of their communities and then choosing seeds from largest K communities. There's a AAAI 2018 paper, should you want to get into details of how this gets done. All right, so having address some of these challenges. We built a system that I'll refer to as sampling healer. Uh, sampling because it, it's sampling the network. It is generating a robust policy. And what it does is it selects a set of peer leaders. It says bring in these five leaders, uh, these five youth, and then after seeing who's present, who's absent, it will say bring in the next five youth and so forth. So at this time, it was trying time to do a pilot test. So with the sampling healer in each, there are three arms to this pilot test. Sampling healer, which is our sample network. This is our actual algorithm. We recruited 60 youth. Healer is just like sampling healer, except that it knows the full network, doesn't have just a sample of the network. And degree centrality is the traditional approach. Bring in the most popular youth. It makes sense, right? You bring in the youth with the highest degree, the high degree centrality. Again, about 60 youth in that. And we then selected 12 peer leaders in each case as per the recommendation of that algorithm. And this is an actual picture of our social work colleague educating the youth who were identified as peer leaders by these algorithms. There were obviously 12 different peer leaders in each of these pilot tests. And then the question was, at the end of a month, how many of the non-peer leaders, the ones we did not bring in for the education session, got informed about HIV? And what we find is after a month with degree centrality, 25% of the non-peer leaders got informed about HIV. With healers, 75% of the non-peer leaders got informed about HIV. So our influence maximization algorithm is clearly far more effective in spreading HIV information compared to traditional approaches. With sampling healer, we seem to be even higher than healer. And that just could be this particular sample that was chosen because we are doing a small pilot test at this point. But 
given the performance of sampling healer, we decided to now compare it on a larger sample. So in this actual final test, we are not only interested in the actual, how much information was spread, but whether there was actual change in behavior. And this is work done with uh, Professor Eric Rice of social work. As far as we know, this is the first large scale application of influence maximization in social networks for public health. And this was done with in collaboration with three nonprofits, My Friends Place, Los Angeles LGBT Center and Safe Place for Youth. We recruited 750 youth in this study, 215 each of the three arms. One, the first arm was our sampling healer algorithm. The second was degree centrality. The third was no intervention at all. In each case, we recruited peer leaders as per the recommendation of the algorithm. 15% of the youth were chosen as peer leaders in each case. And then we wanted to understand what was the change in behavior after a month and then after three months. And here's what we found. At the end of one month, in terms of reduction in condomless anal sex, which is one of the HIV risk behaviors, with sampling healer, there was more than 30% reduction in condomless anal sex. With degree centrality and control group, there was no reduction at all at the end of one month. At the end of three months, we see that degree centrality begins to catch up to sampling healer, but still sampling healer is still better. What's important here is that the speed at which sampling healer is able to cause changes in behavior is important because this is an HIV risk behavior. So having it, having this behavior change occur faster is important. And also because youth in this community come and go and therefore having this behavior change happen faster is important. Following on, Professor Tambi provides an example of successful AI intervention in wildlife conservation using technology to assist national park rangers in Uganda with their patrols and poaching prevention. All over the world in conservation areas, there are wonderful wildlife, but there are threats to the wildlife. Snares or traps by the thousands that are placed in order to maim and kill wildlife. So you can imagine the job of a ranger to uh, search these forest areas, trying to look for traps. And you can see that this is a very difficult task if you have a very small number of rangers who are in charge of thousands of square kilometers of national parks that they have to protect. So for example, this is the Queen Elizabeth National Park in Uganda where we've done a lot of work. And so in order to figure out where to send rangers, you can divide up the park into one kilometer by one kilometer grid square. Each grid square now is so-called target um, areas where there's water. You can imagine there are more animals, so this is a more important area for poachers. So we are trying to learn poacher response model at each target to figure out how they respond to our patrols. So based on that, we can recommend patrolling strategies to these rangers. So we have 14 years of data from Uganda when we started this work. So for example, it has ranger patrol frequency per each grid square, animal density per each grid square. This obviously we know from maps, what is the distance to nearby rivers, roads, villages, etc. And so based on these different features, we are trying to predict the probability of finding a trap per one kilometer grid square of the park. We did do this uh, prediction using an ensemble of classifiers. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip the details of that. 
we produced all kinds of results in the lab to show recall, precision, this, that, AUC, whatever, doesn't matter. Our colleagues in the field are not convinced. They wanted to do an actual field test. So we selected two nine square kilo. This is our first pilot test, two nine square kilometer areas in Queen Elizabeth National Park that were infrequently patrolled. These are shown by the green dots. The red dots are where previously a lot of snares, traps have been, had been found by the rangers. We are asking the rangers to go to completely new areas, very infrequently patrolled. They haven't found any snares there. And we told them, you once you patrol them, you, our model predicts you are going to find snares there. And so the rangers patrolled for a month and every day they would report back an email as to what they saw. Initially, there was nothing, but then they found a poached elephant with its tusks cut off. And soon thereafter, a whole elephant snare roll as pictured here that they removed. So poachers were active in the area. They were killing elephants, but before they could kill the next set of elephants, we were able to remove this elephant snare roll, hoping that this would, you know, we are hoping that this has saved lives of elephants. Then we had 10 antelope snares that were found and removed. So this pilot test was seen to be a success. And at this point, there was a longer test that was done in Queen Elizabeth and Murchison Falls National Parks in Uganda and Shripak Wildlife Sanctuary in Cambodia. In each park, we selected 24 areas, infrequently patrolled areas of nine square kilometer each. We predicted some of these to be high risk, more snares will be found. Some of these to be low risk, less snares would be found. So basically we are not saying go to any, uh, you know, infrequently patrolled area and you're going to find snares. We are saying even there we can discriminate. There are some areas at a high risk and some are low risk. And then rangers went out for six months and came back with what they found. And where we predicted high risk, indeed more snares were found compared to where we predicted low risk. And this was seen across all of these parks. Today, we, what we find in Shripak Wildlife Sanctuary in Cambodia, these are pictures of the snares that were found because of our predictions. The number of snare captures jumped from 101 to 521, more than five-fold increase once our system, which is called PAWS, started getting used. In, this is now in regular use. In 2021, just uh, you know, in March, they found 1,000 snares uh, in the park. And so this is just showing that these techniques that you are all learning about and uh, you know can be very useful for the fight against poaching and so today pause has gone global we have made integrated pause with the platform called smart that is a collaboration with wwf wcs and 13 other wildlife conservation agencies smart is what is active across the globe in hundreds of national parks by rangers and so by make integrating PAWS with SMART, we've made PAWS available to all of these rangers. Uh, we are testing PAWS out in all of the national, you know, many, many national parks. And so this is a very exciting time in terms of PAWS getting used in order to make predictions to save wildlife. So I'm going to uh, just say one more thing, which is, um, you know, there are drones that get used for conservation and we've built image recognition to uh, you know automatically detect poachers in these images human beings who shouldn't be in the park who are there illegally and wildlife so with that i'm going to stop i'm going to skip over some some other details and uh, come to the last part which is uh, key lessons i wanted to repeat achieving social impact and ai innovation goes hand in hand 
we don't have to sacrifice AI innovation when we try to work on social impact. We want to ultimately empower nonprofits to use AI tools and avoid being gatekeepers to AI technology for social impact. Nonprofits is where we are going to get our AI for social impact problem. It's a partnership. We have in AI for social impact, we have to look at the whole data to deployment pipeline. It's no use just trying to concentrate on improving algorithms because that doesn't achieve social impact. It's important to step out of the lab and into the field. I can give you many instances where sitting in the lab, we had no clue what was going on. And once we went into the field is when the problem became clearer. To embrace interdisciplinary work, whether it's social work, with conservation and others. And of course, lack of data, as I mentioned, is the norm. It's a feature of this problem set and it should be part of our project strategy. We'll now hear some questions from the audience. Oh, thanks, Milan, for the talk. That's uh, really inspiring. Um, I've got a more general sort of question um, around, you know, working with NGOs. You know, seemingly AI and NGOs are, as far as you can imagine, on some spectrum of technology use. Um, and how do you sort of bridge this gap? And, you know, what's your experience with um, engaging with them, you know, talking the same language as they talk? and and in general, do you sort of engage in some process of co-development of these models with these NGOs or what's the process? How do you go about it? That's a, that's a beautiful question. Um, it's a deep partnership that has to be developed. There has to be trust. There has to be uh, time spent in building up a relationship. And um, for example, with this wildlife conservation organizations, it took me some years just to Initially, I was sort of thinking, well, I'll be, you know, sitting in my office in the US, I'll be sending a few emails and then they'll just say, ah, great, you know, we'll just send you our data and now let's just work together. That's not the way things happen. Uh, so this um, group in uh, Uganda kept saying that you have to come down here and then we can talk. And so finally, uh, initially I was saying, you know, I was sort of reluctant, but then I just flew down to Kampala City. I met with the officials there. I went to Queen Elizabeth. Um, actually, I went to Murchison Falls National Park uh, in that trip and met with people in the park. And then, you know, there was some kind of an understanding, uh, some kind of a relationship that got built. And then after that, I received data uh, from Uganda. Same with Cambodia, too. I mean, if, you know, WWF uh, uh, Cambodia, I mean, they're very interested in working, but they wanted us to see actual situation on the ground. And so we went there, we visited with them, they start, you know, and after that, a very nice relationship got built up and then we have been working with them throughout. So, yeah, I agree. It's not, um, uh, you know, it's it takes a little time to build up that trust, build up that relationship. But um, the, the end result, I feel, is very powerful and it's worth it. And, um, you know, for AI researchers, um, I, I, I sometimes I have to sort of drag people out of the lab to say, hey, you know, you have to, you, you can't just assume that people will just come to the lab and say, here, USB key, all my data, process everything, give me back everything, and then I'll just use it and, you know, wonderful. That's not the way things will happen. And it's true. I mean, they also want to make sure you understand the context in which they're working. And uh, going to Cambodia made us appreciate what a difficult job. I mean, the pay is for the Rangers, you know, pay is low, poachers are shooting at you. 
the place is like, I mean, I stayed there uh, in the park for one or two nights and it's just like they gave us the best accommodation. And even then it was like, I can't imagine how people can stay there for six months at a time. They're away from their families. So it gave us a, a deeper appreciation of the hard work that goes in. And when they say something that, it, you know, saying that, you know, this patrol is hard, we, yeah, this, we will, you know, we will change, we will change our algorithm to make sure that the patrols are better than, you know, what we had given you, rather than just saying, you know, just do it, you know, or something like that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good question. Thank you. And finally, Professor Tambi discusses appropriate expectations of how future AI systems might be built to incorporate societal implications or human-centered behavior in their decision-making processes. So I think um, one of the things that uh, I feel is a recognition that the entire uh, data to deployment pipeline is important because when we talk about hot research areas in AI, we often focus on just algorithmic portion, uh, you know, uh, this uh, reinforcement learning is now hot versus, you know, some something else being hot, etc. And um, so for at least for AI for social impact, my view is that the idea that we actually have to see impact in in the real world uh, is something that will become more important. What this means is that understanding how to efficiently measure impact how to actually do uh, clever experiments to measure impact. Because these are things like in public health, there's a whole field called implementation science, as you may know, whose job it is to actually measure uh, impact and how to actually you know, do clever experiments so that you can see differences. You know, does something work in uh, Australia may not work the same way in Los Angeles, you know, like uh, in India or something like that. So these are all questions of culture, context, uh, impact. So these kinds of things we often say, oh, that's not AI. That's just like, you know, some somebody doing experiments in the field. But that's science. I mean, that's like testing an AI algorithm versus some other algorithm, understanding why something worked, why it didn't work, um, all these sorts of things. So that's on the experimental side. And on the data side, I mean, you know, there's sort of this idea that there's so much data, you know, like we are drowning in data. Everybody, you know, the guys, but but this in our domains this is not true and so we have to come up with all these clever techniques of sampling social networks and you know this uh, restless bandit because we can't quite figure out who's in what state and all of these kinds of things so these are all outcomes of the fact that we don't have adequate data and we have to be sensitive and selective and all these kinds of things about data so at least in AI for social impact, I feel paying attention to the whole pipeline will be an important next step. And I think they'll, I mean, I just feel like there needs to be and there will be a greater recognition that we want to bring AI's benefits uh, to the large sections of the world, you know, who have not benefited from AI. Uh, benefits, um, you know, have largely been confined to a smaller section of the planet. And in order to actually show that impact in the field and not just write papers about it, uh, we have to you know, we have to actually engage in experiments in the ground and, and measure impact and deal with the fact that the data are not there and all these kinds of wonderful things. So I, I think all of these are 
going to become important. I feel they should become important. Uh, hopeful they are going to be important. So thank you. I mean, that's that's I guess where, where I stand. Professor Tambi joined us for this event as part of the ADMS Tech Talk series, bringing together leading researchers and industry experts in the ADM field to discuss the impacts and opportunities of technological advancements. You can find similar ADMS Tech Talks on our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening.